Paul proves that true leadership has absolutely nothing to do with power or position or the title printed on your business card or on your office or if you even have an office. It's not 100% about influence. It's 100% about whether you know God personally and are following him and are used by God for others to follow you as you follow Christ. What does it take to be an effective leader? Are leaders born or made? Can you be a leader if you don't have any power, if you don't have any authority, if you don't have a title? Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg in Jerusalem. Welcome to the Inside the Epicenter podcast. I usually do this with our executive director of the Joshua Fund, Carl Muller. Carl's on a much needed uh, few days off. Uh, so uh, I'm grateful for him and grateful that he's getting a little time to, uh, of R&R. Uh, but this ministry of the Joshua Fund continues, and uh, uh, we're going to talk about some lessons about leadership today. It happens to be that Carl was just here in Israel. We just had our annual uh, conferences that the Joshua Fund hosts, and we've been doing this for 11 years. It is probably the most exciting and encouraging and fruitful time of ministry that we do every year. There's a lot of things that we do that we invest in, that we uh, help organize to strengthen uh, the church in this part of the world and, to, of course, to preach the gospel and, and to educate the church around the world. But, uh, but one of the things that's the highlight of our annual calendar uh, is in November, and this is when we do a conference uh, every year called Preach the Word, Shepherd the Flock. Preach the word and shepherd the flock. And what is that? That means this is for all the pastors in Israel and uh, among the Palestinians, all the pastors and ministry leaders and their wives. They're invited to come. Joshua Fund uh, covers all the expenses at a, at a lovely hotel, uh, again, one in Israel and one in the Palestinian Authority. And everyone's invited. And And the great thing for uh, these pastors and ministry leaders and their wives is we sort of say it the way you, you don't have to come to cook. Uh, you just have to come to eat. And by that, we mean you don't have to teach. The, these folks are responsible for leading and shepherding and, of course, teaching the word of God. Uh, and they do that week in, week out. And it's wonderful and it's fruitful and they're called to it and they do a great job, but they're also tired. They get exhausted. They need a break. And most people in ministry in this part of the world don't have the financial resources to go, you know, take a weekend away with their wife. Uh, they don't have a chance to sort of get away from everything and just be fed the word of God and have time for fellowship and, and worship. And prayer, and again, to be fed the word of God, uh, you know, the real meat and potatoes of the word, where they don't have to be asking God to help them prepare and to teach, but that we bring in some wonderful pastors and their wives from all around the United States, and myself and my wife as well, and we teach the word of God. We've been doing these conferences now for 11 years. You know, the first year we went through the book of Titus, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and it was fascinating. That's not actually the way most pastors here in the region teach. Um, there are a lot of different ways to teach the Word of God. Uh, you can do it with uh, sort of the two classic ways would be um, sort of picking a theme or a topic, topical preaching. You might pick uh, how to have a godly marriage, right? And you might teach a series of passages in that lesson or a series. Of, you know, you might do a series. You might do a five-week series on um, you know, how to be a godly a husband and wife and have a godly marriage. And you might teach from multiple passages throughout the Old and New Testaments to bring that topic clearly into focus. Uh, but the other way, uh, main way, there are multiple ways, but the main two, that topical and expository. 
Now, expository preaching, you take a book of the Bible and you just literally walk your way through it. And you take lessons as the Holy Spirit sort of laid them out, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and so forth. So that first year we did Titus. We just taught it through, right? It's a perfect uh, little book, three chapters uh, for pastors and ministry leaders, right? It's, it's a book that Paul wrote entirely about leadership. So that was our first year. The next year we taught through James, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. The next year we went through First Thessalonians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Again, not a way that's normally taught through here, but it's a great way. And it's such a wonderful way to bring some additional pastors from the States, from small churches. These are not name brand pastors, but they come, they've been with us every year. I, um, most of them have been with us all 11 years. And, and that has built consistency and it's built uh, a relationship between our team at the Joshua Fund and the pastors and ministry leaders here in Israel and among the Palestinians. And it's been not only a highlight for our calendar, because we consider these pastors and ministry leaders here in the land heroes, right? This, these are the people that God has raised up to serve the nations, to preach the word and to shepherd the flock. And so there are heroes and they need our prayers and they need our encouragement. And that's been wonderful. And eight years ago, we thought, you know, Acts, the book of Acts is so interesting. And it's, it's not theology, although there's theology in it, it's narrative. These are stories of how God began to fulfill the great commission, right? Jesus commanded the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, right? He said that at the end of uh, Matthew, he said a version of that uh, that's recorded at the end of uh, Mark and Luke, of course, and, and John. But in the in the first chapter of Acts, right, Jesus says to the disciples, you will be my witnesses, right? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You already have the Holy Spirit in you, but the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, where they were, then Judea, then Samaria, and even to the very ends of the earth. And of course, Judea and Samaria are the biblical names for the land that most people in the world call the West Bank today. So it's fitting that we would be teaching the people who live and minister here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria from the very book that God gave us to show how did the Holy Spirit move through the local believers, through the apostles and the disciples to take the gospel from Jerusalem, take the word of God and, and the concept of the church and plant these churches and choose these pastors and strengthen these pastors and expand the kingdom of God from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts takes that on. We see the gospel start in Jerusalem and then move all the way to Rome by the end of the book. So it's taken us eight years to work our way through it. And we haven't been in a rush, but, you know, we take three or four chapters a year and we divvy them up among the four other pastors. And then myself, I'm not a pastor, and I don't play a pastor on TV. I'm a lay leader, uh, but lay leaders can preach the word of God as well. Uh, but we bring these guys uh, and their wives, and we, we've we been walking our way through Acts. And this year we ended it. We finished chapters 26, uh, 25, 26, 27, and 28. And today I want to um, start a two-part series on the podcast, looking at the last two chapters of Acts and a little bit of an overview, of course, in this podcast of, of the book of Acts. Why have we been going through uh, this book for eight years? And the main reason, I'll just front load it, is lessons on leadership. We learn about how the Lord is leading the church and how God raises up leaders from unlikely places. Right. The Apostle Paul, we learn, was a religious terrorist. Right. This is not a guy who you would say, oh, this guy was born to be a pastor. He was born to be 
an evangelist. He was born to be an apostle, right? It's not obvious when you look at the life of Paul in the early chapters of the book of Acts that God is going to use him. If you're receiving this letter for the first time, you're Theophilus, you're the Roman Greek-speaking government official to whom Dr. Luke, the author of the book, is writing. If you're reading through this, you're thinking Saul's a bad guy. He's not even called Paul at the beginning. It's Saul, and Saul is a Pharisee. He's a a hyper-religious Jewish person, meaning he doesn't just he's just not a faithful religious Jew in the first century here in what was known as Palestine then under Roman occupation. But he's he's a terrorist. He's so zealous to be the like a super religious Jew, like just and, and he hates the concept that Jesus or in Hebrew Yeshua is the Messiah. He doesn't believe that and he doesn't want anyone to believe it. And he's against anyone who does believe it. And he's arresting them and he's throwing them into prison. And he's even voting against some of them to be uh, not only beaten, tortured, but killed. Uh, This is Saul when we meet him. Now he becomes Paul, right? But how, how does that happen? Well, that's part of the book of Acts. How did Peter, uh, who was so timid and abandoned Christ, abandoned Jesus, uh, uh, betrayed Jesus at the end of the Gospels. Says, I don't even know this Jesus. I don't know. I don't know that guy. Says that he brings curses upon himself to prove to everyone around him in Jerusalem that he, he has no connection to Jesus. Now, if you're Theophilus and you've read through the Gospel story and you see Peter completely blowing up his capacity to be a leader— by the end of the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke, but you see that Jesus dies on the cross but also rises again. But you think, wow, that's really too bad. Peter just sort of flames out. He blows up. He's he's not useful at all. And didn't Jesus say that he was going to build the, his church on the, on the confession of Peter saying earlier in Caesarea Philippi uh, that uh, Jesus is the Messiah? That's what Peter said. That's what Peter believed. And Jesus said, and you are a rock, and I'm going to build my church on your confession that I am in Jesus, saying I am, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the world. But by the end of the Gospel according to Luke, uh, Jesus has been betrayed by Peter. So if you're Theophilus reading this account, you're thinking, well, what happened to Peter? And when you read by chapter 2 of Acts that Peter has the courage to preach to probably tens of thousands of people the Gospel with no fear— filled with the Holy Spirit, incredibly bold, incredibly passionate, uh, you think, what just happened? How did Peter go from a blow-up, a flame-out, a betrayer of Jesus, to Jesus' most effective spokesperson in Jerusalem? That's an amazing story. It's a story that begins the book of Acts, right? And so we begin with Peter, and the story moves to Paul, and then we follow, mostly, the story of Paul right to the end. Uh, Now, there are other disciples, of course, other apostles whose stories are amazing, but they don't get told in so much detail uh, in the book of Acts. And that's because, you know, there's a limited amount of space. And the Holy Spirit spoke to Luke, the physician. He wasn't a trained writer, uh, but God chose him to write an orderly, detailed, well-researched account of the story of how Jesus was born and grew and taught and did miracles and then was arrested and falsely accused and unjustly convicted and then crucified. But big surprise, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the story, uh, Jesus rises from the dead at the end of the book and proves to be the Son of God. 
proves to be the Jewish Messiah. It's an amazing story. And then Luke continues the story and say, okay, from that beginning, how did the church spread all over the Roman world, all over the Greek-speaking world? How did Jewish people all over the Roman world hear about the gospel? And why did so many of them say yes to Jesus and receive him as Messiah? And why did so many others reject him? And what about the rest of the Gentile world? How did the Gentiles enter the kingdom of God? How did this go from a Jewish story in Israel, in Roman-occupied Palestine in the first century, to the heart of Rome itself? How did the church expand all over the known world, the civilized world at the time, and even get to Rome itself? That's the story of the book of Acts. And as my colleagues and I were praying about it, as at the Joshua Fund team was praying about it, we thought, wow. You know, we've studied some of these epistles, but the story of how God begins to fulfill this great commission, this great calling that the church has to take the gospel to everyone, to make sure that everyone everywhere has at least heard the gospel message and has a decision, has a chance to make a decision to either receive Christ as Savior or reject him forever. Everyone has deserves a chance to at least hear the story. How did the Holy Spirit begin to move? through ordinary and flawed people uh, to accomplish this. And so that's why we embarked on this adventure. It turned out to be an eight-year study of the Book of Acts, which we joyfully uh, concluded uh, in November at the Preach the Word, Shepherd the Flock uh, conferences. And, and it's because we love the pastors and ministry and leaders and their, and their, their spouses and their families and their teams so much. It's not easy to be a pastor or a ministry leader or be the wife of a pastor or the wife of a ministry leader, to be engaged either in men's ministry or in women's ministry, children's ministry. It's not easy to do that here. And when you look at the book of Acts, you, you can see that it wasn't easy in the first century. It wasn't easy not only in Israel, but in any of the neighboring countries. But just because it's not easy doesn't mean we're not supposed to do it. Just because it's hard, just because it's difficult, just because it's dangerous sometimes to preach the word and shepherd the flock doesn't mean we're supposed to abandon uh, the mission that God has given us. The question becomes how? How do we become faithful to doing the work that God has called us? And the key is the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That becomes the theme of the book of Acts, that these were ordinary, flawed men who were transformed, not because they read some self-help book and not because they sort of picked themselves up by the bootstraps and sort of made themselves do the work. No, these were men who were empowered by the Spirit of God. They were filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and they became leaders. So if you ask the central question, you know, what are the lessons we can learn about leadership? This is essentially the question we've been asking for eight years, really for 11, uh, but specifically through the book of Acts, and which I thought it'd be worth taking a couple of weeks and, and talking about with you all, because there are lessons to be learned. Now, I'm going to focus on lessons from the life of Paul right in the last couple of chapters of Acts, because um, I had the joy of uh, preaching these two chapters, one at the, one conference and one at the other conference. We unfortunately, uh, because of the legalities and challenges here in the land and all the tensions, we can't have all of the Israeli pastors and ministry leaders meeting with all the Palestinian pastors and ministry leaders. That just won't work. And um, so we have to have uh, two retreats. Um, and uh, in the Israel version, we have um, Jewish and Arab pastors. Really, everyone is invited, except sometimes we forget somebody and we apologize for that. And we have to keep building the lists and making sure that, you know, as God raises up new people or 
uh, whatever that we're constantly updating our list. But the heart is that everyone who would want to be invited uh, is invited and that the Joshua funds that and organizes it as a blessing to the local believers. So let's answer some of these questions. Is a leader born or made? Okay, well, that's an, actually an easy one. You can't be a leader if you're not born, right? How can you be a leader of men and women, young people, if you haven't been born? So obviously you have to be born. <clears throat> More importantly, you actually have to be born again, right? If you're going to be a godly leader, a spiritual leader, a Christian or messianic leader, uh, you need to have come to faith in Jesus Christ. You need to be saved and you need to be growing in your faith and, and steeped in the word of God, to know the word of God well, so that, as Paul says to Timothy, that you become a workman unashamed, that you know the word of God so well that you don't have to be ashamed that I don't really know this, or you're starting to just give your own opinions of what the word of God means. No, no, you're teaching, you're training, you're equipping young believers to grow in their faith and become capable of walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and teaching the word of God to others, sharing the gospel of Jesus the Messiah with others so that they can hear and make a decision and hopefully come to faith and become part of the church. And uh, so uh, to be a leader, you need to be born. <laughs> you need to be born again, but you also need to be made. You also need to be fashioned. It takes time to be fashioned, to be shaped into a godly leader. And we see that in the life of Peter, because in Peter, we get uh, four gospel accounts and we get to see the book of Acts. So we see many years in Peter's life where he is not doing it so well, doesn't seem to get it, is listening to Jesus, but doesn't fully understand what Jesus is asking of him. And then we see the transformation as not only is the word of God now in him, but the Holy Spirit is in him as well. And the Holy Spirit's power is transforming Peter from a, a guy who it probably is a natural leader, meaning he's more likely to jump out front and tell people, come follow me, but uh, he's also more likely, as we see in the, in the gospel accounts, to put his foot in his mouth, right, to just say things without thinking, to just make decisions without having thought it through or prayed it through. But we see the, uh, the maturing of Peter throughout the gospels and in the book of Acts. And then, of course, as I referenced at the beginning of the podcast here, the Apostle Paul's life is one of the most fascinating, arguably the most fascinating life outside the life of Jesus, the Messiah himself, right? Paul goes from a, a fanatical, extremist, religious terrorist, Jewish terrorist, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, arresting followers of Jesus and, and persecuting them and even uh, approving their, their murder. And then he becomes a follower of Jesus dramatically uh, on the road to Damascus, right? In a vision where Christ appears to Saul directly, and this transforms him. And then we watch him emerge, grow, mature into arguably the most effective apostle in the history of the church. And so there are leadership lessons to be learned from Paul. One other thing, uh, and then I want to get into chapter 27, and the topic of this podcast, to be more precise, is uh, how do you lead in a shipwreck? And can you lead um, when you don't have any power, when you don't have any authority, when you don't have a title, what if you have nothing, but you're a follower of Jesus, you're filled with the Spirit, you know the Word of God, but you have no earthly authority, no office, no power? Can you lead people? And if you can, how? We're going to look at that in just a moment. But I also want to make uh, one other point. There was a wonderful uh, professor at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary that I met years ago. 
I didn't go to uh, seminary and therefore didn't go to Dallas, but I've gone to conferences there and, and, and know the leadership there. I've even taught at Dallas Theological Seminary. But I, I got a, a, a set of tapes, um, audio tapes, uh, cassette tapes, uh, you know, that back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I was listening to these tapes, and they were tapes produced for Campus Crusade for Christ's Ministry of Management. So these were tapes designed to help equip uh, leaders on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ in the U.S. and all around the world. And uh, they were all three tapes, uh, front and back, were uh, messages by this Dr. Howard Hendricks, Dr. Howard Hendricks, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's since gone to be with the Lord. And, uh, but I had a chance to meet him, and I was glad to meet him because I had listened to these tapes when I was young, when I was really starting to grow in my faith in upstate New York, in a little tiny church in Fairport, New York. And honestly, uh, it was a wonderful church, very loving, very kind. I don't really recall any sermons that I ever heard there. I'm not saying that God wasn't using that to influence me a little bit, and uh, that's certainly where I came to Christ, but I wasn't really growing uh, there for whatever reason. It's, it's a longer story, but, but my father gave me these tapes, and I listened to these tapes until I basically wore them out. I almost memorized these tapes. And the whole thing was about leadership, how to lead, part one and two, characteristics of a leader, part one and two, and how to motivate, part one and two. And I was just enthralled. I, the, there was sometimes teachers of God are so anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can hear their messages, and years later, they're still influencing you. You're still remembering them. And that was certainly true with the life and ministry of Howard Hendricks. Anyway, he had a great line, and he said uh, he, had, he had a two-part definition for what a leader is. And his definition was a leader is someone who knows where he or she is going. Okay? They have a direction. They have a goal. And if they're a follower of Christ, then it's a biblical goal. It's, it's you know, it's not, I mean, you could be a leader and be a horrible, evil leader and have an objective, have a, a, a sense of where you're going. And it could be horrible. It could be wrong. Stalin, Hitler, you know, the Ayatollahs of Iran, they, they have a sense of where they're going. But in terms of being a Christian leader, or a messianic leader, what, what are we talking about? That you know where you're going. You understand the word of God. You understand God's call on the believer and what the mission is that Christ has given us. So you know where you're going. That's first part. And two, that you have the ability to persuade others to follow you. Okay, It's not enough to just know where you're going. There are many people in this world who they do know where they're going. They're going to the right place. They understand the word of God. But God has not gifted them with much of an ability for people to follow. Or maybe, you know, maybe their families follow them or their, their brother or their sister or a few friends. That's wonderful. Um, but when we think of leaders, we often tend to think people who are moving more than just a couple of friends or family members, leading a congregation, leading a ministry, uh, leading a movement. So God builds leaders and shapes leaders that have a focus on, on a few, and he, and he raises up others to reach, you know, thousands or, or hundreds of thousands or even millions. But those are the two qualities, and those resonate with me. That's true. A leader must know where he or she is going and be going to the right place, and they must be able to persuade others to follow. And there are natural leaders. Peter was a natural leader. People were willing to follow him at first, but he didn't know where he was going. He just had a, a magnetic personality, and he was bold, and people were like, oh, let's follow him. But he didn't know where he was going until Christ entered his life. Paul knew exactly where he was going, but he was going to the exact wrong place as a religious Jewish terrorist. 
but Christ transformed him. And then both men knew where they were going. And we see in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit used them and gave them each, not a natural gift of leadership. The Lord gave both Peter and Paul the spiritual gift of leadership. And now they knew how to shepherd a flock. They knew how to preach the word and shepherd a flock. People were following them. In that first sermon by the apostle Peter in Jerusalem at the temple on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, 3,000 Jewish people, religious Jews, come to faith in Jesus as Messiah and are converted. Their hearts are converted. They repent of their sins and they accept Jesus as Messiah and they're born again that day. Peter, who, you know, at the end of the book of Luke, won't even admit that he knows Jesus. Now he's leading 3,000 religious Jews to faith in Jesus in a single afternoon. That's the gift of leadership, okay? Peter not only knew where to go, but God was giving him the power of the Holy Spirit, a supernatural gift for people to follow him. And of course, Paul is going in the wrong direction when he saw, but he comes to faith in Christ, and then Christ uses him so powerfully. And in a moment, we're going to look at some lessons uh, from Acts chapter 27. We're not going to be able to go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, you know, in these last couple chapters of Acts in this podcast or the next, but I do want to draw out some of the key moments, some of the key themes that we learn from Paul, because Paul heads into a, sh a shipwreck. And we're going to see it in just a moment after the break. And it's extraordinary. I'm going to front load this, and I hope it interests you enough to, to continue listening. Paul enter, steps onto a ship as a prisoner. He has no power, no authority. He's in chains. He's no office, no title, no business card. But by the end of Acts 27, he's the commander of the ship. How does that happen, and what can we learn from it? We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hi, this is Carl Muller. After you're done listening to this episode, make sure to tell your friends and family about Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg and allow them to be encouraged as well. God bless. Welcome back. I want to look at the, the verse of the day. There's actually two verses today uh, that we're going to look at. The first, and, and both verses relate to these conferences that the Joshua Fund has been uh, running for the last 11 years to equip and strengthen and encourage and refresh pastors and ministry leaders, both Israeli and Palestinian, and of course, their wives and their teams as well. Uh, so the first verse uh, of these Preach the Word, Shepherd the Flock conferences, where do we get that name, that title, that hybrid of a name? 
for the conferences? Well, the first comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul is leading a young disciple named Timothy, and, and he's equipping and training and refreshing and encouraging this uh, young disciple to be a pastor, to be a ministry leader, and an effective one. And Paul writes this uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, Timothy, preach the word. Okay, Don't just tell people your own opinion about things. Preach the word of God. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they'll turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This is where the Preach the Word conference theme comes from, from Paul telling Timothy here in the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, preach the word. It's amazing how many ministry leaders, pastors around the world will, will pick a verse or two or even a small passage. They'll read it. They'll share it. But really what they want to share with the, their congregation or the audience is their own thoughts. And it becomes essentially a self-help lesson, not exactly teaching the Word of God, not really helping someone understand the Word of God so that the Word of God can do its powerful God-directed work to change a life and inspire someone to go into leadership, to ministry of some sort. Um, that's what the Word of God is supposed to do, and that's why we're supposed to preach the Word and not just share our opinions. There is a place for sharing opinions and sort of our thoughts on things, but but a pastor or ministry leader is really supposed to preach the word of God. And that's what we learn in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Then in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, listen to this uh, passage. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, Peter's saying, I'm your fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Peter says, because of that's who I am, because I'm an elder and I'm a witness of the suffering of Christ, and I, I got to see the glory of Jesus coming back from the dead and all that he said and did. Because of that, I'm encouraging you, Peter's saying, shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not because you have to, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And don't do it for sordid gain. Don't do it to make all kinds of money, to think there's a, this is by being in ministry, that's your way to get rich. No, do it with eagerness. Don't lord it over people. Don't, don't think, well, I'm up here and all the people are down there. Don't lord it over those allotted to your charge, Peter says, but prove to be examples for the flock. And then when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So that's where we get the concept of preach the word and shepherd the flock. A few prayer requests. I would ask you to be praying for the pastors and ministry leaders here in the Holy Land, right? Both the Israelis, Jews and Arabs that are in ministry and also the Palestinians 
uh, that are in ministry. These are dear brothers and sisters, uh, and they are so encouraging to us. And we've gotten to know them over the 16 and a half years that the Joshua Fund has been around and the 11 specific years that we've been running the Preach the Word, Shepherd the Flock conferences. And um, uh, we love these guys, but they're tired. You know, it's a lot of spiritual warfare. It's a lot of challenge. There's not as much fruit here as in other places in the world. And it can be challenging. It can be discouraging. And so that's one of the roles of the Josh Fund. We, we just love these guys, these men and women, we want to, and the, the young people. And we want to come alongside them and encourage them. Well, let's take a quick look here in the time we have on this podcast and look at Acts chapter 27. Okay, It's a fascinating uh, chapter. And... I'm going to read it briefly so just because why? Because, I, because I'm supposed to at least have you listen to the word and then I'll just draw out a few points. We won't be able to go through it verse by verse, but you're going to see a fascinating uh, dynamic emerge. And that's why I want to say that clearly up front so that you're listening for it. Paul is entering the ship as a prisoner from Caesarea, okay, uh, the, the northern port city here in Israel, which was a major center of, of Roman military operations and political operations in the day in the first century, that he gets on a ship and they're heading to Rome and Paul has no power, no authority at the beginning of the chapter. By the end of the chapter, he's in charge. Let's watch. Acts chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, meaning Turkey, what we call Turkey today, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Let's take one moment to say, so Paul's getting on the ship, he's in change, he's a prisoner. There's a Roman centurion in charge of him, and it says uh, he's of this Augustan cohort. What does that mean? It means that Julius, this character that we now learn about, he was an elite commander of an elite Roman special forces unit that was dispatched by Caesar, the emperor in Rome, to do missions for the Caesar all over the Roman Empire. And so one of the missions here is to take Paul, who's been arrested. He's been tried on unjust charges. The Jewish leadership in Jerusalem hates Paul. They want to kill him because he has become a traitor to them. He has betrayed them in their view. He has become a follower of Jesus when he had been a persecutor of the followers of Jesus. And now they're worried, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, that Paul is going to lead many, many more Jewish people to faith in Jesus. And they hate that. Uh, and that's tragic. So they've tried to kill Paul, and they've tried to get the Romans to convict him and kill him. And in the end, Paul has to appeal in chapters 25 and 26 of Acts to Caesar, meaning I don't think my case is being handled fairly. And as a Roman citizen, I have the right to have my case heard by the emperor himself. It's very rare. You would never do that if you were already going to be convicted and you were guilty. You would never go appeal to Caesar Nero, one of the most vicious and bloodthirsty men in, uh, in, in the world. And he becomes worse in the years ahead in the first century. Uh, but Paul knows that he's innocent and he doesn't see himself getting a fair trial at all. So he appeals to Caesar. And now Julius is in charge of taking Paul, the prisoner, uh, to Rome. And uh, Paul has two friends with him. One is mentioned, Aristarchus, 
uh, who's, who's been mentioned throughout the book of Acts and as a strong disciple and follower of Jesus and, and, uh, and is being discipled and encouraged and mentored by Paul himself. He's a great teammate of Paul. And the other one is Luke. Now you say, well, I didn't hear the word Luke. Right. Luke is writing the book and he's saying we. Whenever we hear the word we in the book of Acts, we know that Luke is actually living this part of the book, that he's an eyewitness to this section of the book. And that's certainly happening here. So they get in the ship and they're they're starting to head up to uh, to Rome from Caesarea. And, and, it, and now the next few verses will talk about how hard it is for sailing. The winds are against them. The ship is moving slowly. They're not making much progress. Why? Uh, because Luke writes that uh, the time of the fast of Passover, which is in the fall, late September, early October, depending on the year, has already happened. So they're heading into late fall. They're heading into winter. And in the Mediterranean, people don't go sailing back in the first century as you head to winter because the storms get so intense that it's too dangerous. You need to hunker down and harbor, get in a harbor, a safe harbor, and uh, and just ride out the winter. And three, four months later, you can sort of emerge. And as the weather gets better in the spring, then you can continue your journey. But you wouldn't risk your life or your property, your cargo, by sailing after the Jewish feast of, uh, of Yom Kippur and, and the high holidays in the fall. It's not a feast, it's a fast, sorry. Uh, you wouldn't do it. But they're doing it. This ship is doing it. And uh, Paul is nervous. And he says in verse 10, listen, guys, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, which is valuable to you all, but also of our lives. See, Paul senses this isn't going to go well. Guys, this is not a good idea. And he's trying to persuade the ship's captain and the commander of this elite Roman unit and the pilot of the ship and, you know, the 275 other people that are on the ship, this is not a good idea. What does Paul know? Is he a sailor? No. But we know from the life of Paul in the New Testament that Paul has already been shipwrecked three other times. Three other times. We read that in 1 Corinthians. So this is now... Paul is like, I've been here before. I see what's happening. This is not a good idea, and we're all going to die. Don't you understand that? Now, the text does not say that Paul has heard this from God. He's just saying, I perceive this. My sense of, in all my other experiences, this is what happened. This is not a good idea. And he warns everybody. Now, who is he to warn them? Why should they listen to him? He's a prisoner. He has no authority, no power, no influence, no title. He's literally in chains, and he might be chained up in the bowels of the ship. Maybe he got to ask and say, hey, can I come out for some air for a few minutes? And in doing that, says, guys, listen to me. Don't do this. We shouldn't sail. We should park the ship in a harbor, and let's hunker down for the winter. Verse 11, but the centurion, Julius, was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. That's a little bit of... Bible humor, meaning like that's like me if I was on a plane hitting the call button bing, and having a flight attendant come and said, excuse me, I have the sense that this plane is going to crash. Could you go tell the pilot and the co-pilot and the navigator and the crew up there that they better land in a safe place because this plane is going to go down? Do you think that anyone would listen to me or to you? No flying experience. No, you're not a pilot. You know, you're not in the Air Force. Like, who are you? Why should we even listen to what you say? So we see Paul has no influence, not just authority or power. He has no influence, but he speaks because that's what leaders do. 
he, he senses this and he's concerned not only for his own life, he's concerned for all of their lives and their property. And so he speaks. They don't listen to him. In fact, verse 12 says they actually took a vote and the majority decide, no, 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 let's continue on. Let's get this cargo up to Rome. So that's how we make our money. Right. So they don't they don't want to wait. They're going to press through, even though they're heading into the dangerous time of sailing in winter. Verse 14. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called a Eurokeel. Now, in the Greek, when you look at the Greek, what you see for violent wind, that's the Greek word from which we get the word typhoon. A typhoon is bearing down on them now. A hurricane is bearing down on them. This is going from bad to worse. And pretty soon, they can't even steer the ship. They're just being pushed along by these horrific winds that are coming from the north, uh, Arctic winds up in like Siberia and the, and the northern tier and pushing across the European continent and right across the water. And it's it's driving this ship and they lose control of it. And I encourage you to read it. By verse 18, what do we read? The next day we were being violently storm tossed and they begin to jettison the cargo. This is why they're sailing to make money. They have a cargo that they have to get to Rome and now they're chucking all the cargo overboard. They're chucking all of their money overboard. Why? Because they're trying to lighten the ship because water is crashing down on them and they're afraid of sinking. It, then it talks about, uh, actually the verse before it talks about, they're afraid the ship's going to break apart. So they take cables and they run them around this wooden ship to try to keep it from breaking apart, to keep it together. It's not working. Verse 20. Oh, verse 19, they start throwing the tackle overboard after more time goes by. Now all the equipment to run the ship, gone. Okay, there is no more equipment to run the ship. They've completely lost control, and the typhoon winds are intensifying. Verse 20, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us. Like, Luke is like, this has gotten crazy. We can't see the sun. We can't see the moon. We can't see the stars. This is a huge storm. And he writes, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. That's it. Everybody on the ship. And these are professional soldiers and professional sailors. This is what they do 24 hours a day, almost 365 days a year, except, you know, obviously not in winter, except they're doing it now. They think they know what they're doing, but now they've lost all hope of being saved. They know they're going to die. And at this point, several weeks have gone by. Two weeks have gone by. And we read this in verse 21. When they, everybody on the ship, had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. This is a bit of an I told you so moment. But he's not saying it to lord it over them. He's saying it because he's like, remember, I spoke when you guys wouldn't listen, but I was right. Now listen to me now. Okay, that's the spirit in which Paul is speaking. Paul still has no power, no authority, but he's speaking. He said, I did warn you, and now that it's happening, let me say something else. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, to be encouraged. Why? For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, you know, the people listening are like, what are you talking about? How do you know, right? This is it. And then he answers that question. Verse 23, for this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood 
before me, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Paul's been praying for the lives, the souls of everybody on the ship. And this angel is appearing saying, you have to stand before Caesar. This is God's mission for you. You will get to Rome safely. You will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the emperor of Rome. You will have a trial there and get to speak. But the ship is going to be destroyed. But I've granted you, God has granted you the souls or at least the lives of everybody on the ship. You've been praying and God has granted and you a yes answer to your prayer. Verse 25, therefore, Paul says, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God. I believe God. I know this God. I belong to him. I serve him. He spoke to me. I spoke to him. He spoke to me. And I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must first run aground on a certain island. That's a stunning moment. Everyone has lost all hope of even surviving. They've already given up the the cargo. They've given up their paycheck. They've given up the ship, but they're now completely feeling like they're going to die. That's it. There's no hope. And then Paul speaks into this and says, God has told me that he will save your lives. Now, it doesn't say they listen to him or believe him, but now it, it, but it says, you know, they keep being driven by this horrible, horrible storm. And then it says they start taking soundings and first they're at 20 fathoms, then they're at 15 fathoms. They realize they're getting closer to some form of land, but it's so rainy. It's so foggy. It's so windy. It's lightning, thunder, this incredible typhoon, hurricane force winds. They can't see almost anything, but they can tell they're getting close to land. So now they get worried, the text says. Now they fear we're going to hit some rocks and the ship's going to you know, burst into pieces and we're going to run aground and we might run aground too far from the actual shore to live. It doesn't say that they believe him. They've listened, but it doesn't say they believe him. They don't believe Paul. Now, now, verse 30, some sailors start to try to escape. They're like, I'm out. We have this this skiff, this boat, which we had secured earlier in the chapter. I didn't read that section. But now they said, let's go. Some of them think, let's just untie this skiff, this dinghy, this boat. This is how you get, you, you, you park the ship with anchors and you, everybody gets in the boat and they go to shore and then they send the boat back and get more people. That's how you, you know, get on and off these types of ships back in the day. So some of the sailors think, forget these guys. Let's get that little boat, lower it, and we'll escape. Paul sees them. And what does he say? Verse 31. Paul says to Julius, the, the, the elite Roman commander, the unit, he says to the soldiers, unless these men, these sailors, remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. In other words, Paul is saying, God told me we would all be saved. But we're all in this together. If you let those guys go, God's promise isn't operative anymore. Whoa. Now, the top Roman commander on this ship, the man who ultimately is in charge of this ship, right? Yes, there's a, there's a captain. Yes, there's a pilot, right? There's a crew. And normally, the captain's in charge of the ship. But when you've got an elite Roman commander on the ship, Rome is in charge, okay? The Caesar is in charge. And his representative is Julius the Centurion. And now Julius has to make a decision. Is it every man for himself, or does he believe Paul, and are they going to follow Paul's advice? Verse 32, they follow Paul's advice. 
Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, the skiff, and let it fall away. Now they have no way to get to shore except to swim. And then as it was about to, uh, the day was about to dawn, Paul encourages them to eat. Okay? He says, today is the 14th day that you've been constantly working and watching and, and you know, they're probably throwing up and the seasick and the whole thing. This is the 14th day that you've gone without eating. You've taken no, no food for two weeks. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food now, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he sets the example. He takes bread, he gives thanks to God in the presence of all, he breaks it, he eats it, he distributes it. And then one more thing happens. They hit a, a reef and the, and the ship gets stuck. The bow of the ship gets stuck. And now the, the pounding waves and the, and the wind are smashing the back of the ship and the whole thing is coming apart. And they can see a bay ahead of them, but they're not close enough to just, you know, walk. They're still in some seas, but they can see the bay. So the commander tells everybody, okay, it's every man for himself now. Those who can swim, jump over and start swimming to the bay. And these massive waves, you know, they're all hoping they can still live, but Paul says they can. But also, those who cannot swim, you're just going to have to hold on to a board or a barrel or something from the ship that floats and hope that you can make it uh, into the bay onto land. And the soldiers then decide, well, we have to kill all the prisoners, including Paul. That's their job. They're not allowed to let anybody escape. But Julius intervenes and says, no. You will not kill any of the soldiers because he wants to preserve Paul's life. And in the end, verse 44, it says everybody got safely to land. This is an amazing story. And what it shows us is Paul with no power, no authority, no office, no, he's a prisoner. He doesn't have any freedom, much less a voice, much less any influence. But by the end of the story, by the end of this chapter, he's in charge of the whole thing. The elite Roman commander is listening to him. The soldiers are listening to Paul. They're obeying Paul's commands, not anybody else's. The ship captain, the navigator, the pilot, they're all obeying Paul. The 275 people on that ship, they're obeying Paul, Paul the prisoner, Paul with no power, Paul with no influence, no voice, no authority. But God used him. That is leadership. And that le where does that leadership come from? What did Paul have that compensated for the fact that he didn't have power, didn't have authority, didn't have any influence. He had a relationship with God. He had a power of the Holy Spirit. He knew God personally, and he talked to God in the midst of the shipwreck, and God spoke to him, and he loved these men, and he'd been praying for them, and in the end, they listened to him. Now, that doesn't happen every time that we're in a dangerous situation, but that is an extraordinary picture of leadership. You don't need an office. You don't need authority. You don't need power. What you need is a personal relationship with God. You need to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be praying for everyone around you. You need to look out for their best interests. You need to serve them the best you can. And when there's a moment of danger, you need to be the voice of truth. You need to be God's spokesman or spokeswoman and ask the Lord to give you favor so the people will listen to you. They will follow you, even though they really shouldn't. And yet they really should. If you're following the Lord, then you are the right leader for others to follow. Let me wrap it up with just a few last thoughts. This is actually a 
I thought this was going to be short, but this is actually longer than we usually do them. I've gotten into this story. Uh, just a few thoughts. First, Paul passes the Mark 4 test. I want you to go look up Mark chapter 4, and you're going to see that Jesus and the disciples were once in a terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee. These disciples are terrified by this incredible storm. Jesus is asleep in the boat. He's so exhausted from ministry that he's asleep, even though there's incredible waves and storm and water splashing on them. And everybody's afraid on that ship, on that boat, the sailing boat, that they're all going to drown. They're all going to die, that the boat's going down, that they're going to not make it. And they shake Jesus. and They say, teacher, wake up. Don't you even care that we're going to perish? What does Jesus do? Well, he <laughs> he's God. So he tells the wind and the waves to be quiet. And they're quiet. And everything goes back to normal. And the disciples are shocked. They believe Jesus is a, is a political leader that he's going to be a political Messiah, a redeemer of the nation politically from Roman occupation. They don't yet realize that he's God. And now they're like, who is this person with the authority over the wind and the waves? But Paul doesn't get scared on the ship. He's like, if he dies, he's going to heaven. He knows that. But he believes God is telling him to go to Rome and that he's going to make it there. But he wants everyone to survive and he wants them all to get saved. And that's where Paul puts his focus. So he passes the Mark 4 test. The disciples failed it. They were terrified. And they thought Jesus didn't even care, much less have any authority or power to protect them, save them. Paul doesn't fail that test. He's been in multiple shipwrecks before. Okay, he's in another one. But he is God's man. He knows God personally. And he's not going to lose his faith because of a crisis. That's a great lesson for us to consider our faith. One other thing, and again, this is a point I've been making all the way through. Paul proves that true leadership has absolutely nothing to do with power or position or the title printed on your business card or on your office, or if you even have an office. It's 100% about influence. It's 100% about whether you know God personally and are following him and are used by God for others to follow you as you follow Christ. It's a great chapter. I encourage you to read it, but let me just end with some prayer requests. Pray for the pastors and ministry leaders and their spouses and their teams in Israel, among the Palestinians, that God would grip them. That even though in many ways they feel on a day-to-day basis, like their people are not listening to them, they don't have the level of influence that they would like to have, that they just need to be faithful to knowing God, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and making the word of God known to the nation. Some will listen, some will not. Some will follow and some will not. But they don't need to fear. We don't need to fear as believers that we don't have some position of power, authority. We don't need that. God may give it to us, but we don't need a power and authority. What we need is to know God, to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, to preach the gospel, preach the word, to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, and to encourage people to follow us as we follow Christ. So pray for the believers here and um, pray that that God would strengthen the, the church here in the land to be bold and unafraid in walking out of the Great Commission. For Carl Muller and our entire team, I'm Joel Rosenberg in Jerusalem. I hope that's been encouraging as we've studied some of the lessons of leadership from the Apostle Paul, even leading in a shipwreck. God bless you. Look forward to being with you again on next time's podcast.
podcast. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. Sis, if you've experienced pain in your father-daughter relationship, I want you to know that you are loved and seen. I'm Kia Stevens, host of the Hope for Women with Father Wounds podcast, and I created my show to help you exchange your father wounds for the love of God the Father. Join me for encouragement, wisdom, and scripture. Just search Hope for Women with Father Wounds on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.